From KIOS in Omaha, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I'm talking with Geithner Simmons, author of the new satirical sci-fi thriller, Android Run. The force of satire in the, in the wake of a gross political irresponsibility and utterly uh, illus- uh, illusory thinking by both individuals and institutions, satire, I, I think, can continue to have... Uh, great direct relevance in uh, speaking to our current culture. We're talking about the news, how the world is often stranger than fiction, and the way the book evolved during the tumultuous past few years. Stay tuned for the conversation after this break. Welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Satire uses exaggeration to critique something about the world we live in, to engage in a critical examination of how to address societal problems. But what happens if the world is crazier than anything satirists can come up with? How can anybody satirize a world run by, as Kurt Anderson has put it, the greatest self-paradise of all time? My guest today is Geithner Simmons, author of the new book Android Run, which he describes as a sci-fi thriller with a heavy dose of farce. The book, which is available now, follows Julian, a silver-skinned, nearly-human android who is the president's chief policy advisor, and he goes on a journey that involves murder, blackmail, and manipulation in a relentless quest to gain total power for himself. Here is my conversation with Geithner Simmons. November 7th, 2020 was the day Rudy Giuliani held the press conference challenging the presidential, the election results. Uh, And he was at Four Seasons Total Landscaping, and it was this bizarre intersection of scary, democracy-threatening politics, but also very funny stupidity. And I wondered when that happened if satire might just be over at that point. Uh, And, you know, because we run into some of these problems, which is, uh, you know, Christopher Buckley has been a satirist forever, and he quit for at least a few years there because he said – he can't keep up with the parody that is reality now. And, you know, Kurt Anderson has described a lot of people in power as the greatest self-paradise of all time. So when you're deciding, all right, it's time to do a satire, parody, farce, how do you how do you parody people who are already parodies in a lot of ways? Yeah, we, uh, as as I and others have said, surely we, we uh, must, Tom, be living in the most... Uh, absurd and uh, most abused alternate timeline in the universe. I mean, uh, where where do these situations and mindsets and people come from? Uh, you know, when I wrote that uh, E novel of mine, my, my guiding principle uh, in many of the cases was always make it over the top. Uh, and I have a, uh, a quirky sense of humor and uh, and that worked pretty well in that story. But, you know, as you just explained, looking around at the real world that surrounds us, you know, the, the, the whole social media universe just uh, feeds, feeds this uh, hysteria and frenzy. And uh, then more and more people just seem to be uh, jettisoning any uh, uh, critical thinking and uh, sense of balance and uh, an analysis. And so, and then politicians, you know, self-interested politicians and self-interested uh, political entities, uh, you know, uh, just selfishly uh, pursue their, uh, their own ends. And, and so uh, remarkably and lamentably, we uh, just wind up in these ongoing, almost daily uh, satirical situations by by real people. I, I sometimes find it hard to contextualize how absurd things are versus how they were in the past and how maybe it's just the more distance you get from the past. You, you have rose-colored glasses and you just assume that people were uh, less cartoonish than they sometimes are. But, you know, I, I've been watching, there's been a lot of shows about Watergate that have been coming out, like uh, Gaslit, The White House Plumbers, and someone like Liddy seems fairly cartoony. And I wonder, do you think things are more absurd overall, or is this something about just living through it feels different than once it becomes accepted history? 
Yeah, I, to, to me, there's sort of a two-part answer. On the one, on the one hand, we're just surrounded by technology and culture that's constantly throwing uh, all this material at us, and so it's uh, as we know, it's just super empowered uh, eccentrics as as well as uh, political entities, as well as uh, you know TV talk show producers to uh, just spew all this stuff right onto our screens and into our faces. That said, uh, you know, I think you make actually a fascinating, important point asking, uh, you know, to to what extent really in past generations uh, did this, uh, did, did these, did this farcical dimension exist? Just look at Hitler's regime. I mean, what a collection of total idiots and buffoons, you know, surrounded Hitler. Just look at look at all those uh, that cast of uh, you know evil characters, but also really uh, utterly cartoonish. Uh, let alone Hitler himself. Uh, you know, you look at uh, Father Coughlin. You look at uh, Joe McCarthy. Previous generations, indeed, uh, were burdened by. Uh, you know, ample doses of buffoonery. And of course, as you said, Watergate, I was a junior high kid uh, 50 years ago and uh, so well remember the uh, the Watergate hearings. I grew up only uh, 30 minutes away from, uh, from uh, Morganton, North Carolina, which is where uh, Sam Irvin was from. Uh, but just as you said, I, I well remember not only the cartoonishness of uh, of uh, the the plumbers, but but of course of Nixon himself. Uh, oddly enough, when I was a young reporter in the uh, '80s back in North Carolina, I uh, had occasion to meet Nixon. I used to, among other things, cover congressional contests back in my home state, and uh, Nixon was in Greensboro, North Carolina, in the very late '80s uh, to raise help raise money for some candidate. Uh, so it was talk about bizarre. Uh, I was standing only like, you know, four feet away from Richard Nixon. It was uh, quite peculiar. <laughs> well, yeah, and there's kind of two dimensions there because you've done work both in journalism and then this latest work of satire. Uh, what do you think it is that satire brings to the conversation? Why is it necessary to have satire uh, to expose problems in the world and to get people to, you know, often think sort of critically or constructively about, you know, real things through the exaggeration of satire and farce? I, th- I think uh, satire just has a, a preeminent value, not least in the current age, whereas uh We've just been talking about we're surrounded uh, by continuous political machination, uh, you know, that, that from my point of view, warps reasoned uh, political debate. But I, I think satire, uh, that, that there's a number of ways in which satire has a wonderful value. Uh, from my point of view, it's very important uh, for any institution, uh, any political movement, any political figure to uh, to step back and uh, and analyze itself. Uh, there, there is an immense, again, from my perspective, there's an immense value in uh, in doubt, and I think satire is just a fantastic uh, vehicle, a fantastic instrument for holding a mirror up. Uh, to institutions, and it really, it's its not even a funhouse mirror. In, in some ways, the satire truly reflects the reality. I mean, again, in this uh, e-novel that I wrote, and actually, even though it just came out this spring, I wrote it back in uh, 2016, you know, it has all these uh, silly farcical situations revolving around Congress. Uh, but, uh, you know, my God, look at... Uh, Look at all the things that happened, not least where this spring the Republicans, you know, had these uh, never-ending votes uh, just to uh, uh, finally elect a a speaker, Uh, you know. And then, of course, we have Santos, uh, who who just seems to have stepped out, stepped from uh, bizarro world. Uh, So, I, you know, I I really think that uh, the satire 
can can have tremendous societal value. It also can uh, can expose actually genuinely farcical or uh, unrealistic, irrational takes that uh, political figures or political institutions may take on an issue. It can uh, just by the exercise of of inflation, of uh, hyperbole and exaggeration, it can actually, uh, as I see it, underscore, if not the absurdity, at least the weakness of a lot of political arguments and certainly a lot of political mindsets. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Geithner Simmons, author of the new satirical sci-fi thriller, Android Run. Join the conversation on social media or call in with a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089, which we may play in one of our upcoming shows. So something you said in there was that there's immense value in doubt. How, how did you come to believe that? Well, you know, you had, uh, among your other guests, you had Jay Jackson, uh, who was sort of a Twitter friend of mine. You had Jay as a, uh, a guest weeks back. You know, my life experience, I, I came to adulthood in the uh, 80s and 90s, and uh, and as a, you know, as a political reporter, at the very start of my journalistic career back in North Carolina, uh, you know, I, you know, I, I did my best as a reporter in, at the start of my career to, uh, to be as objective and detached as I could, but I was just astounded at this formative part of my life. I was astounded at, uh, just the, uh, the extremes to which, uh, political entities in my home state uh, would would just knock down um, co- normal constraints of 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 sensible behavior uh, to further their own interests. I mean, I'll give you an example, and this uh, relates to my e-novel. Um, when I was a young reporter starting out uh, back then. Uh, Democrats control the uh, General Assembly, the state legislature in North Carolina. And I would report on this. I wasn't based in Raleigh, but uh, I covered a lot of uh, issues back then. And it was just shamelessly um, uh, power mad. Uh, The the Republican minority (laughs) had zero power, and the Democrats uh, were just preying over that. And there was even this supremely arrogant group called the super sub uh which was the super sub committee and all it was was uh uh five or six old fat white guys who sat in the room and really made all the big decisions uh for the state house and then i'll never forget literally they would come out of the door and uh one of them the house speaker i remember one time he was asked a sensible question by one of the reporters in raleigh and the lawmaker just laughed in the reporter's face and just walked on without answering. And, you know, I'm like whatever I was, 27, 28, 29 years old, you know, and and I'm thinking, what the hell? You know, is is this this is my home state. I have great love for my home state. This this is just uh, such arrogance. Well, you know, the, the political wheel turned and the Republicans took over. Well, hell, they were just as bad as the Democrats were, the, you know, the Democrats then in the minority were under totally under the heel, under the boot of uh, the, the GOP, uh, GOP power apparatus. So, you know, what the, the, the question is, what is the public interest here? Uh, and in, in the pursuit of power, at least from my experience, so often big entities, uh, political, political entities, lose sight of putting the public interest first. So, uh, t- you know, again, to me, doubt uh, has uh, much value. Uh, also, just like as I mentioned Jay Jackson, you know, if one had to peg me ideologically, I'm uh, sort of a, a wobbly centrist, have been for four decades. And so f- folks of my t- temperament, uh, you know, often come to some of these uh, issues, especially values issues or perhaps, uh, uh, you know, technical issues of how, how do I allocate, you know, limited budgetary resources, for example. 
And so doubt uh, sort of in a mindset like that, doubt sort of becomes uh, preeminent. Uh, you know, when um, when the U.S. Supreme Court, over when that majority on the Supreme Court overturned uh, Dobbs, uh, what did uh, Chief Justice Roberts write in one of his uh, opinions on that? He underscored, not literally, but figuratively, he underscored the word doubt in uh, t- talking, uh, in responding uh, to the majority that had uh, tossed Roe out the window. You said uh, one of the things that bothers you in politics or that started you on this journey was seeing shamelessness from people in positions of power. And I think both satire and journalism often try to use shame through exposing wrongdoing in hopes that (laughs) that there is some shame in there, that it does matter either for the candidate, for the politician, or that maybe it reflects on uh, the voters who might feel that this is bad, this is wrong, therefore I will vote differently. I wonder, though, I mean, it seems like in the last few years, we've really been pushing things in toward uh, a, a place of where I have some doubt on the efficacy of shame, whether it's coming from a fictional angle or a journalistic one. Do you think shame has an ability to move the dial? No, no, I do not. Uh, we are. Oh, my God. Uh, we are indeed surrounded uh, daily with uh, really pathetic examples of small-mindedness uh, and, and utter narcissism where just egregiously, uh, obviously, I mean, my God, turn on these TV talk shows, you know, look at uh, certain political individuals, both uh, whatever, the state level, the national level. And indeed, just as you said, um, you know, uh, zealotry and narcissism make for a, uh, a pretty dismaying combination on the part of, uh, you know, those uh, figures and uh, some institutions. Uh, I, I will say, that, you know, just on sort of a sober-minded, technocratic note, as, uh, as a longtime student of our legislature, uh, th- this is one of the main uh, ways in which I come to the value of of doubt, because even though now working at UNL, I, uh, I don't have time to follow the, the legislature at the uh, very cl- extremely close level that I did uh, when I was at the Omaha newspaper. Um, as, as one who uh, watched very closely floor debate at the legislature uh, for many years, uh, from my perspective, uh, you know, often the legislature's um, legislators would, uh, in the end, have to reach some kind of compromise. And so they would have to step back from taking an absolutist position and see uh, at least some measure of the argument from the other side. And so, you know, at least in in that sort of narrow policy-focused dimension, uh, I, I do think a sense of humility uh, does have value. But again, going back to the point you just made, uh, neither uh, uh, n- neither humility nor a lack of shamelessness uh, are in the, uh, the forefront of our political culture these days. So as far as your pursuits, you've got satire is the most recent one. You worked in journalism for a very long time. What was it that drew you to journalism? Yeah, I, uh, you know, I was a small town kid who grew up in uh, uh, western North Carolina, an hour north of Charlotte, 80 minutes uh, east of uh, Asheville. And uh, so I I had a perfectly fine education there uh, locally, but it was really only in college when I was an undergrad uh, during Jimmy Carter's presidency when I was an undergrad at uh, UNC Chapel Hill, that uh, really the life of the mind just opened to me. Uh, It was just, um, I'll never be able to repay the gift uh, to my undergrad alma mater that uh, that that, that, uh, experience had for me. So uh, back then I was quite interested in history and I thought perhaps uh, I might become a teacher, I might become a professor, but, 
uh, in the back of my mind, journalism was always of great interest for me, sort of like in the sense of uh, of sociology. Uh, you know, what I remember when I was young, even though I didn't quite didn't think of it in quite these terms, but you know, I used to think a lot about my local community and the way uh, factors came together there. Uh, you know, for either uh, better or for ill. So anyway, after uh, undergrad, I went to grad school at uh, Georgetown, the School of Foreign Service, and got a master's degree there. And that that was completely uh, stimulating and rewarding. Uh, but I, I told professors that uh, I really thought I wanted to go into journalism. And so, you know, uh, that was sort of an elite school, and they actually gave me uh, some quite privileges, privileged opportunities. I uh, was able to go to a, a newsroom meeting uh, that uh, Ben Bradley uh, led at the Washington Post, and I met with a bunch of editors over at Newsweek. Uh, I didn't speak to Bradley directly myself, but anyway, my point is I, uh, I told all these elite folks uh, about my general interest in journalism. And, you know, I, I wasn't a J school grad. I was an old humanities and social sciences uh, guy. So uh, they told, uniformly, they all told me the same thing. Uh, why not uh, go back to North Carolina, a place I know well, you know, and just dive right into reporting and develop the skills and sensibility. And that's exactly what I did. I started at uh, quite small paper uh, but almost immediately was covering, uh, you know, issues in my home community that that really meant a lot to me. And, uh, you know, I just slowly, slowly developed the skill set that, uh, you know, like you had Matt Wynn, for example, as a guest uh, weeks back. You know, <laughs> Matt Wynn, you know, just a, 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 a Nebraskan of you know, at the pinnacle of journalistic ability, it's just so funny uh, for me to think about how back in the 80s when I started in journalism, you know, I just had so much uh, to learn. But uh, so anyway, that's how I came into journalism. And then, as I said, at least in terms of the, the political world, I've already d described how uh, some important things shaped me. And then uh, I was just when I was a young adult in the 80s and 90s, I was just, uh, you know, for for better or worse, agree with me or not, I, I was just uh, drawn more towards uh, uh, the, the centrists during the Reagan administration, the Republicans and Democrats who would, uh, you know, try to steer, uh, steer the roiling waters, you know, and, and reach agreement on things. Uh, Sandra Day O'Connor on the Supreme Court, you know, trying to <laughs> trying to work with those who are right and left. That's that's just uh, again, for better or worse, that's the way long ago my my mindset developed. So you know, it's sort of given me a sense of, uh, and you know, I was an editorialist for for ages at newspapers. It sort of gave me a sense of detachment from. Uh, uh, you know, from parties and uh, from ideological allegiances. Not that, uh, you know, I threw many darts as an editorialist over the decades and, and, and of course, championed many causes. But, uh, but again, uh, th this is only my take, but, but I, I put great stock in independent-mindedness. Uh, but, but, again, it, it's like Tony Vargas said to me many, many years ago, state Senator Tony Vargas uh, from uh, from Omaha. Tony did a great job one time when we got together when he described our state legislature. He uh, he described it not as uh, just some kind of starkly divided bipartite institution. Uh, rather, he described it as an ecosystem where you know different lawmakers serve different functions. You know, regardless of whether they had a D or an R affixed to their names. And uh, I, I just uh, found Tony's description uh, to, to be quite applicable. I'm talking with Geithner Simmons, author of the new satirical sci-fi thriller, Android Run. 
Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and stay tuned for the rest of the conversation after this break. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Remember, you can find the backlog of all of our episodes wherever you get podcasts. And while you're there, we'd love it if you gave us a review. Today I'm talking with Geithner Simmons about his new book, Android Run, which combines sci-fi, political thriller, and satire into a high-energy tale set in the 2040s, which hurtles forward with scenes from Washington to Alaska, California to Cuba, and dramatizes very relevant themes to today, like vicious political division in Washington and the role of AI in our national lives. The book is available now, and here's the rest of our conversation. I wonder... As far as the editorial board goes, and I, I think in the context of today, the the value of an editorial is maybe murkier for a lot of people who didn't maybe grow up around that. I think uh, you've got this very polarized climate of cable news, of talk radio, of blogs. And so, uh, you know, people like to have their opinions. They like to be able to share them. They like to be sort of the spotlight and to be opinionated in a way that maybe you can't be while doing investigative journalism. So what is it? What, what's the value of having an editorial section in a newspaper and what, what does a good one do? Yeah, for sure. And, and, and again, just as you said, uh, it's up to a reader to make those judgments. You know, in, in terms of the uh, editorial dimension, the proclam- the assertion of opinion by the newspaper as an institution, I think the, the strongest and central point to be made is that a newspaper's editorial voice needs to speak to the public interest. Uh, you know, just as we look around in Nebraska itself right now, the legislature, uh, other political figures are discussing, you know, issues of uh, great... Uh, preeminence and relevance uh, to the state's present and future. It's, it's a, a, a long-standing part of many newspapers to, as an institution, speak to what it perceives as the, the, as the public interest. I always used to say when I was at uh, the Omaha World Herald on the opinion side that the editorials should always be guided uh, above all by trying to point to what the public interest was. So I'd, I think that's uh, one of the central values as I see it. Another point, you know, really aside, from, separate from the world of politics, is that uh, both in its reporting and in its opinion work, a newspaper can provide just a preeminent public service, a style service, by giving a sense of place to the community. Uh, You know, we live in an age where newspaper economics are just so troubled, although, of course, I mentioned Matt Whittem a a bit ago. I know that Flatwater, of course, is doing strong work, and, and of course, our our, uh, newspapers continue to do so, but the economics are so difficult. But, uh, you know, what happens uh, when a newspaper uh, evaporates in a community. Well, you have then the disappearance of a central focal point in community identity and community discussion and uh, community deliberation. And, uh, you know, John Lauk, a a wonderful expert in Midwestern uh, studies, John is uh, a South Dakotan. John had a, a, wonderfully detailed academic article that uh, ran early this year. I forget exactly which Midwestern academic publication it was. And John wrote at length, pulling together uh, just uh, a quite impressive, if discouraging, amount of material about uh, the deterioration of, of newspapers, large and small, across the Midwest. And as part of, you know, John's a historian, a, a scholar of uh, Midwestern uh, culture and above all history. And John's article just included all this wonderful detail about the history and legacy of newspapers from, you know, a, a huge paper like the uh, Chicago Tribune down to uh, quite small papers in Iowa or Illinois. Uh, but he talked about what the character was as uh, a community institution. And then he talked about, rightly, 
how the uh, the diminishment of that uh, societal role by newspapers, uh, you know, can just be so harmful uh, for community awareness and self-identity. Is there something that fiction is able to do to get people to reflect on real life problems, reflect on community interest, to reflect on society in general? Does fiction have mechanisms to get people engaged in a way that journalism, whether editorial or not, can't? My mind goes to both literature and film. For me, the vividness of those media have a power. Perhaps it could be matched by the really strongest uh, journalistic writers, including sports. As we both know, uh, some sports writers just have an astounding power. Um, Dirk Chatelain uh, at the World Herald you know, did a series of articles about North Omaha and the uh, the richness of the sports legacy, and then and then how that uh, related to racial history. That was one of the strongest pieces of journalistic writing I've seen. But that said, I think that the ability of a fiction writer, of a novelist, of a short story writer, to to draw on that wide array of literary colors. And just the, the, the power, the vividness, the drama, you know, can have a societal uh, power. I mean, uh, roll back the clock to the start of the 20th century and um, the writings about uh, the uh, horror show that was the Chicago Slaughter Yards and, you know, the, the egregious lack of governmental oversight of basic uh, public health considerations. I think that's one in American history and the American experiences. I think that was one of the the classic examples, although I'm certainly no specialist in Native American studies. Exercises in fiction bury my heart at uh, Wounded Knee and, and, uh, you know, exercises uh, like that. Uh, I think it's been amply demonstrated that they do have a notable uh, societal power. And and I, I think that that should make uh, novelists, you know, with an interest in pursuing that kind of craft. Uh, I think that should uh, give great encouragement and inspiration to present-day writers who do want to address this array of societal issues that weigh on us. So you've talked about the general frustrations that made their way into Android Run, but I'm curious, how long was the kernel of the idea there for you before you actually started drafting it? Yeah, um, it, it, you know, Tom, you, uh, you're an expert in, in fiction. Perhaps the, the name of an old science fiction writer, Robert Checkley, uh, may ring a bell. When I was a kid long, long ago, uh, I was just a devoted reader of uh, Checkley's little short stories from the 50s and 60s. And he just had a grand time dreaming up these little soft sci-fi stories where they weren't hard science, but they he would use uh, a scientific foundation to just create uh, these delightful little stories, for, uh, so many different little farcical little scenarios. And so uh, I don't know if it was when I was watching uh, Star Trek The Next Generation and saw Data or not, but anyway, at, at some point many years back, the, the idea occurred to me of what if one flipped the switch on a supposedly lovable automaton and um, made that uh, individual a, uh, the, the villain of a story. And then, you know, a, a large aspect of, of this scene novel I've done is, is poking fun at uh, congressional politics and so I've already described how I was just aghast at um, talk about shamelessness about at the shamelessness of the way uh, the legislature in my home state of North Carolina used to be run. So, and then when I came to Nebraska in '99, I was like, "Oh my God, uh, how could this state legislature be? They actually have some committee chairs are Republicans, some committee chairs are Democrats." Uh, is it is this tr- truly possible? I'm not saying that any institution is perfect. Certainly, uh, 
the legisl- our legislature at any uh, in any era was was of course uh, far from perfect. But I was so struck as a newcomer to Nebraska more than two decades ago. I was so struck uh, by uh, at least the aspiration to achieve a nonpartisan culture at the state capitol. It's sort of like uh, back in 2015, 2016, uh, there was just this confluence for this nutty story that I decided to do. So I came up with this story of of a uh, of a murderous, ever scheming um, uh, android who uh, has tremendous power in the White House and then make the Congress absurdly farcical. But um, but drawing on my little nonpartisan ideals, have a, a hard right and a, a progressive lawmaker become friends, close friends, just through love of music. <laughs> well, and you're, you're balancing a lot of genre elements here. So you've described it as a sci-fi thriller with a heavy, a heavy dose of farce. How did you know that this story could handle the different tonal uh, expectations that go into each of those genres? I underscore, I do not at all claim to be some highly skilled fiction writer. To truly, uh, to, to state it as honestly as I can, this just happened to be a story where in this one instance, for whatever factors within my creative self, this story, I have to say, coalesced without tremendous difficulty. Uh, I, I certainly did rewrite, and I, and after I wrote the story in 2016, I worked closely uh, with an editor in New York who uh, did copy editing, and um, <clears throat> that was completely fascinating, and it, it really uh, boosted my appreciation for skilled editing uh, even higher. I'd always appreciated uh, capable editing in news, my newspaper days. My novel, it exceeded 100,000 words. I forget what it was offhand. Uh, I think it might have been about 110 but anyway, we cut the piece down to a little over 90,000 words. And, you know, you would have, writing is, talk about shamelessness or, or, or ego, rather. You know, writing is uh, sort of inherently, you know, a narcissistic endeavor. Or at least, uh, you know, one's ego is heavily invested in the creative enterprise. And it was just so funny to me. I didn't argue Hardly at all with any uh, choice the editor made in uh, editing that text. Uh, he even said throw out one of the chapters, uh, even though it had some really funny stuff about that villainous android. But he said uh, throw this chapter out because it really doesn't advance the story. And, you know, I looked, I reread that thing and I'm like, well, I'll be damned, you know, uh, having an outside view here really does uh, pay off. So, you know, another way to answer your question would would be, you know, if I were someone who have who had written ten novels and and really had far greater journal uh, novelistic literary capability, you know, I, I could probably describe it more narrowly or closely in terms of technique. But really, it just sort of the balancing of of these elements just really sort of flowed from my particular sensibility. I mean, another way to say it is uh, I'm, I'm working on the story of, of another novel, but it's, and it's sort of like a, uh, a twilight zone story, but it really is, is very, very different from uh, this novel that I've written Android run. And I'm finding it, to be a far, far more challenging and difficult enterprise, uh, and that's fine. Um, but Android Run, for whatever reason, just really uh, just flowed out of my uh, quirky creative sensibility, for better or worse. <laughs> what What were some of the the uh, sort of guiding forces or inspirations? Like, did you look at something like, uh, I don't know, Dr. Strangelove as satire or Vonnegut as someone who's sort of doing satire and high science fiction elements? Or what, what was in your brain? Yeah, right. Yeah, e- exactly. Well, as I, of course, mentioned, uh, Sheckley's 
what Shakley was really the uh, the main influence. Uh, I, I can say again, you know, I wrote this thing back in 2016. Actually, um, one of the main influences, believe it or not, on me wasn't uh, something literary. Breaking Bad, uh, the TV series, but I appreciated that show uh, along a particular dimension in that, at least from my experience long ago now, I I really appreciated how, at least for me, it just created uh, almost a a countless number of memorable scenes. And so when I was putting together this, uh, this novel, Android Run, really my, my, uh, central goal was to uh, just create as many fun scenes as, as I can, you know, within within the limits of my ability, you know. So I came up with, you know, this cacophonous, uh, crazed birthday celebration on the south lawn of the White House that leads to something. And I, you know, came up with a bouncer squad for Congress, uh, you know, where these uh, idiotic lawmakers are shouting, uh, you know, vulgar phrases at each other. So, that, so uh, <clears throat> you know, the, the bouncer squad comes out and, and removes them physically and takes them to quiet rooms. So uh, anyway, this was sort of the path, for better or worse, that I took. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Geithner Simmons, author of the new satirical sci-fi thriller, Android Run. Join the conversation on social media or call in with a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089, which we may play in one of our upcoming shows. Well, you're writing the book in 2016, um, and I know certainly with projects I was working on in 2016, it felt like as the year went on that the world was changing in fundamental ways, and I wasn't sure if what I had written before, basically before Trump got elected, could still land, if maybe the general focuses, yeah. anxieties were all going to be a little bit recalibrated afterward. Um, was was any of that yeah. a concern for you, or did it feel like it fit sort of right in with the general concerns of the book? Yeah, there's a, there's a number of points to be made regarding that. You, you know, obviously, the Trump uh, phenomenon is has just had this... Uh, whatever the adjective would be, transformative effect indeed. So, you know, uh, certainly uh, one could make a fair argument that the major subplot in my story, which is a a hard right uh, U.S. House member and a progressive House member becoming uh, best buds, you know, it's hard to see that in the present day, and I certainly can understand that. Uh, On the other hand, as a Nebraskan who regards it as quite important for our state legislature not to let go of at least the aspiration to have a nonpartisan political culture. Uh, I do think that a a story of people who can step outside uh, narrow, if honestly felt, uh, philosophical uh, confines and still somehow achieve friendship uh, you know, I, I think that's sort of a timeless theme, e- even in an era of such uh, tumultuous and, and frankly, hate-filled uh, political rhetoric. Um, but, uh, you know, it was f- funny, per your point about how time moves on, I, uh, and, and so does, does uh, a work that one had written several years ago, does it uh, become overtaken by events? There, there were in particular, two pretty significant scenes in um, the story that I wrote, the novel that I wrote, that I did have to go back in and change uh, because they were overtaken by events. Um, you know, Tom, you've uh, read my e-novel, uh, Android Run. There is a calamitous, uh, there's a scene with a calamitous congressional debate that um, that ends uh well, I'll just go ahead and say with the speaker giving approval for the never before used measure 22, which one hears uh, machinery whirring and then these giant sheets of plexiglass arise from the floor to separate the lawmakers. There's four parties in this uh, in this uh, scenario in the 2040s and they're uh, 
slamming themselves into the plexiglass, uh, plexiglass because they're still wanting to resort to fiscal combat. In the original version of that, uh, actually, Measure 22 was the release of tear gas. But, you know, in the wake of January 6th, which uh, in my lifetime is one of the greatest abominations I have ever seen, uh, Despicable does not come close to describing the obscenity of what was done on that day. Uh, I just, in reading, um, rereading that little scene in, in my story, I felt that the use of tear gas, it just made me think too much of uh, the ugliness of January 6th. So I had subbed in this, uh, as I described, this use of plexiglass. Uh, then another uh, part of the story that was overtaken, but I was able to deal with it was, um, as you know, there uh, is in my novel, there is a uh, summit between the U.S. president and the Russian president and uh, uh, and dignitaries uh, from the two countries. And it uh, results in a pretty uh, it has a pretty spectacular uh, plot twist uh, at the end of that. But in the original version of the novel, that summit came about because the Russians were planning to invade Latvia. And of course, as you've seen in the novel, but really the whole tone of the novel is almost uniformly tongue in cheek. And uh, after the, the Russian invasion of um, Ukraine, and then just these, these ongoing humanitarian horrors wrought by the uh, Soviet military, uh, there, there was no way that I could, um, you know, leave uh, that part of, of my novel in about a planned Russian attack on Latvia. So, uh, as you saw, I changed it to something utterly farcical. There was a stalemate in the Arctic Ocean uh, between a U.S. vessel, military vessel, and a Russian vessel. And so the, the summit flows from that. So it you know, again, the way my quirky mind works, it, frankly, it wasn't that difficult to dream up uh, another uh, rationale. But again, it uh, it it really was striking to me how in some ways I did have to go back and, as I just explained, revise a couple of the scenarios in the story. So it sounds like generally then as the world has gotten more disturbing or extreme in some ways and really absurd, although not necessarily in, you know, certainly not in entertaining ways, for you, the answer is ramp up the absurdism in more entertaining ways. That's that's the, the way to calibrate it? Yeah, to, to, to me it is. But because as we talked about earlier, uh, the force of satire in the, in the wake of a gross political irresponsibility and, um, you know, just utterly uh, illus uh, illusory thinking by both individuals and institutions, satire, I, I think, can continue to have uh, great direct relevance in uh, speaking to our current culture. So you described the act of writing this book, uh, I think a little bit tongue-in-cheek, as, you know, narcissistic because you're you're drawing out so many of your thoughts and you have to sort of deal with your own brain and you're hoping that it's going to land, that there will be an audience that people want to, you know, read it and it's coming all from you. I think about Kurt Vonnegut talking about his writing, which, as we've said before, has elements of satire, often elements of science fiction to make these big points about society. He said, you know, the the act of writing, because it's this act of artistic creation, uh, more generously, he described it as growing your soul. And even though he wasn't a religious person, he thought there was something uh, – I don't know, beautiful or cleansing or just, uh, you know, profound about the act of it. And I wonder for you, even, even though we've, you know, you started off by talking about it as kind of narcissistic, would you say that it uh, was a profound experience to create a book like this? Did it grow your soul? Yeah, totally so. That I mean, uh, I think that, I think Vonnegut's point uh, relates to, to, to all realms of creativity. You know, what a, what a, what a glorious thing it is to be able to write a song, you know, even if it's just uh, a simple one, to be able to paint that picture, even if it's a simple one. The reward indeed to the soul from creative activity 
it's uh, it's just hard to exaggerate uh, the, the the value and uh, you know just enriching one's life and expanding one's mind and, and building uh, new connections uh, you know both to oneself and to the world uh, uh, so yeah you know that this is just a silly little story but uh, that I came up with. But uh, certainly that entire uh, creative activity over the course of, uh, I wrote it in a year, that entire creative ac activity, you know, has, has uh, just really made me deeply grateful, you know, just to, uh, to look at the blank page, think through how characters are going to interact, think through the tonal dimension that you want. Uh, how heavy to make the uh, hopefully comedic element to it. In some cases, uh, you know, how far to dial up uh, the, the emotional uh, aspect in terms of anger or, uh, or sadness. Uh, you know, these are, th these are questions that any, writer, any fiction writer uh, has to work through and just looking at that blank screen and, uh, you know, I came up with 43 chapters worth of uh, creative activity in that regard. And, you know, and, and, and truly serious literary writers, I think in particular, I think that crap, and we have, you know, a number of quite admirable, talented uh, novelists in our state here. Uh, I, I, I think in particular, the creation of novels at that level, uh, I, I'm just in awe of, and I, I, I would certainly anticipate that that novel writing at at that high level would uh, bring exceptional rewards. Well, I think that's a great place for us to wrap up. Uh, I really appreciated getting the chance to read Android Run and then to pick your brain about it and your life and some of the concerns and how you got to write it. So thank you so much for talking to me today, and I really uh, I'm glad it's out there. I hope people read it. I hope uh, hope it achieves what you're looking for. You know, look, it'd be great if it uh, totally changes the world. Uh, if it just gives people some laughs, that's great too. But overall, thank you for being here today. Sure thing, Tom. Thanks so much. Bye bye. Riverside Chats is a production of KIOS 91.5 FM, Omaha Public Radio. The show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos, and our artwork is done by Ben Matukowitz. Remember, you can find the backlog of all of these conversations wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe today, and while you're there, we'd love it if you gave us a review. As always, thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock. <laughs>